Hello and welcome back listeners to another interview on Laws Dimensions. I am very pleased to be able to do another interview after the long break over the summer and I have more interviews in store soon so I hope you enjoy. Today we have on Professor Dennis Rasmussen from the University of Syracuse where he teaches political theory and political science. And today we will be discussing his recent book that just came out, Fears of a Setting Sun, which goes over the disillusionment of the Founding Fathers in a rather fascinating account. So I hope you enjoy and please tuck in. All right. Hello and welcome, Professor Rasmussen. So today we're going to be talking about your book, The Fears of a Setting Sun. Um, can you talk about when you were starting to write the book, what was the original insight or reason why you wanted to write the book? And after you finished the book, do you think you accomplished what you set out to do? Uh, yeah, so thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, as a proud James Madison College alum, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to, to be with you. Um, so I, I hit upon the idea for the book almost as a matter of happenstance. So um, most of my career thus far had been spent on the Scottish and French Enlightenments, uh, especially Adam Smith, but, but others as well. Um, and, but I had long enjoyed reading, like many Americans, had long enjoyed reading the, you know, big popular biographies of the founders that seem to come out almost every year. Um, but it struck me that, you know, the stories are generally meant to be inspiring and uplifting, but the endings were never entirely happy. Um, in fact, and this is basically the, the theme of the book, by the end of their lives, almost all of the leading founders ended up being rather deeply disappointed in the government and the nation that they'd helped to, to create. And this seemed like a point worth pursuing. Um, I, I was surprised to find when I looked around at the scholarship on the period that no one had really done so in a systematic way. So, you know, I decided to have a go at it myself. And once I started methodically going through the founders' letters and other writings, uh, disillusionment was really all over the place. And so I don't feel like I'm pulling at strings here or inferring disillusionment from a few stray comments. There's just a vast historical record attesting to the founders' anxieties and even despair about the country's future. So that, I guess, goes toward your second question. I mean, I do think, you know, that the, there's enough material there that I, the, the disillusionment, um, in some way, it was overdetermined to, to prove the, the thesis, um, which is striking given that, you know, the founders were all keenly aware how everything that they wrote would be poured over by posterity, private letters, everything else. And yet their growing disappointment in what America became and, and had become during their lifetime wasn't something that they even tried to hide. For each of them, there are just dozens and other, excuse me, dozens of uh, letters and other writings uh, in which they bemoan the fate of the country, often in these really overwrought near historical terms. So and given the perennial interest that Americans have in their founders, it, it strikes me as um, amazing that this isn't better known or more talked about. Yeah, so it seems in my mind that you start off at the best part in your book with talking about Washington, because out of any of the founding fathers, he has the most mythical status of them all. So it was really striking to see some of his concerns over the country, which he's 
the father of um, by all popular accounts. So can you talk about Washington and why he was so diametrically opposed to partisan faction? And can you also talk about how his um, thoughts on parties and faction related to the rest of the founding uh, fathers and just his generation? Sure. And you're right. I mean, it, it, the Washington bit is very striking, right? He's the father of the country. We, we picture him as being, you know, almost the embodiment of, of America and the American founding. Um, but he became pretty bitterly disappointed in what America had become, even by, he died in 1799, and even in that short time. Um, as you, you intimated in your question, the real um, cause of his disillusionment was the rise of parties and partisanship. This was, insofar as he's the father of his country, that's what he wanted his progeny to remain free of. He, and he did, you know, he wasn't alone, as your question also intimated. All of the founders at least professed an aversion to parties or factions, as they were often called. Um, this was a sort of stock theme of 18th century political discourse. But he really stands out in that I, I don't think anyone else loathed them as fiercely and consistently and genuinely as he did. And part of it was that he took partisanship as just a sign of a bad character. But if you were a partisan, that, that meant you were partial, meaning you were putting the interests of some parochial group ahead of the public good, which meant that you weren't a true patriot, right? You weren't exhibiting the kind of disinterested virtue that he, he so prized. But he also more broadly thought that parties would be fatal to Republican government, that they would sow conflict among people, um, open the door to corruption and foreign intrigue, and just prevent the government from being well administered, right? When there's a, a standing opposition party whose whole goal is to try to prevent the president and Congress, leaders of Congress from getting things done, um, he, he thought would keep the government from being well, well administered. Um, now, you know, this sounds almost impossibly naive today, right, to, for him to have expected that parties would not have arrived. Um, now, we should remember that the Constitution itself was devised by most of the framers under the assumption that parties would never emerge. So he's, he's far from alone in his naivete in, in this regard. Um, and, but I, and I also think there's something about the Washington viewpoint that persists even to this day. I think Americans are more likely than the citizens of any other democracy that I know of to, you know, denounce the idea of parties, to demand their politicians rise above mere partisanship. Um, and, you know, I think political scientists would say that, the, you know, would say that this is naive, that democracies don't really work without parties. But um, for the purposes of my story or my argument, it doesn't really matter all that much whether this was a, uh, this ideal of non-interested or sorry, non-partisan disinterested politics, whether this was a noble aspiration or naive pipe dream, you know, is really one of his fondest hopes for the country and its, its disappointment cut him to the core. Because of course, America's first party system arose very soon, right? Within just a few years after the constitution was ratified, the new government was set up. Um, the two sides, the, the Federalists and Republicans were of course led by a pair of bitter enemies within his own cabinet. So Secretary of Treasury Hamilton, Secretary of State Jefferson, and they, they were really bitter enemies. They, they fought each other with a venom that would make some of the staunchest partisans of today blush, um, which isn't something that we often, you know, we often think of the, this, the early republic as a time when these, you know, people we revere, these wise patriots in their, their powdered wigs and their knee breeches and the like, you know, they came together to rationally determine the country's best interests. But in fact, this period is marked by an unusually high level of acrimony and 
just plain nastiness. They treated each other, regarded each other, not just as political opponents, right? People who had the wrong views or advocated the wrong policies. They saw each other as enemies of the constitution, enemies of the, the basic principles of the revolution. The, the Republicans saw the Federalists as monarchists and tools of the British crown. The Federalists in their turn saw the Republicans as Jacobins bent on instituting mob rule. So in every political debate, you hear cries of treason, you hear fears of foreign plots, um, physical violence was lamentably commonplace. So it was really a, a much more bitter acrimonious time than we tend to remember in retrospect. Yeah, so thinking about the emergence of political parties and how newspaper culture really um, played an important role in that. Um, do you think the contention and the bitterness of the time is in part an artifact of its time because so many people were unsure if this new republic that they had created was even going to last? So that made the stakes higher and the contrast sharper? Or do you think there is something else that played into making the 1790s such a polarized uh, chapter in our history? The good question. I mean, first of all, you're right that the newspapers, the, the, they're all partisan papers. There are no papers that almost really attempt to be nonpartisan. And they're really over the top. I mean, the, you know, we talk about the, the fake news and the, the, the polar, you know, Fox News, MSNBC rift and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the newspapers were just as, as partisan, if not more so than in the 1790s than they are in the most extreme ones are now. Um, but it's, you know, and that's reflecting, I think, what political scientists might call the elite culture. I mean, I do think they, uh, Jefferson says at one point that during the Adams administration, people, partisanship had gotten so deep that um, people would cross the, the street so they wouldn't have to tip their, their cap to each other, right? That they um, would just don't, didn't want to be around people from the other party. Um, there are a bunch of reasons for it. I mean, partly, I think it was, you know, they were surprised by it. They had fought this war and this revolution together, and they they expected that somehow, as all good small R Republicans, they would all somehow be on the same page. And so it came as a surprise that people had these really wildly different viewpoints. Um, but I think what you said is is maybe underlies a lot of it, which is, you know, they, they see themselves as embarking on this world historical quest to create a large republic to make it last on, on republican principles which had really never happened before in, in world history and you know they see threats to their project around every corner every time any problem arises you know there are threats of secession there are threats of, of civil war um, and, and really they think it could break up any time they're all the, the letters just say you know, oh, are we going to have to call a new constitutional convention? Uh, you know, somebody going to invite George III's son over and become the new monarch? You know, they have no idea that it's going to last for 230 plus years, right, as it has. And so, yeah, the, the fear, the, the, the world historical importance that they attached to it combined with the fear that, it, that they were walking on eggshells, that any little problem could, could derail the whole experiment, I think lends a, a lot of, um, uh, explains a lot of the, the acrimony. Yeah, so I think next it's really important to go over some of the important events during Washington's administration, Hamilton's plans to assume debts, his plans for a national bank, Jay's treaty with the very heated debate over Britain and France. Um, 
And related back to Washington, because you say in the book, although he professed um, to really dislike parties, it's arguable that in the end he became a Federalist himself. So think about those events in context and then what should it make us think about Washington um, as a person? Because he was one of those people above all else when he said something, he wanted to like act it out and follow it through. He wanted to be a man of his word. He's famous, of course, for modeling himself after uh, Cincinnati. So if, if there's a disconnect or dissonance between what he professed and what he ended up doing in the end um, through especially his second administration, what, what should that make us think about him? Um, yeah, okay, so there's a lot there. So first, you're right, I mean, every event it seemed in, in during the, the 1790s, during Washington's presidency, um, just escalated the partisanship still further. So right, you have the, as you rightly pointed out, the Hamilton's financial plan was the first, I think, big source of partisan controversy. But then, you know, the Genet Affair, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Jay Treaty, you know, on and on, the, the clearing of neutrality in, in the war between England and revolutionary France. It seems like every event, you know, just the, the Republican opposition dug in deeper and, you know, Hamilton and the, the high Federalists dug in deeper on, on their side um, to the point that, you know, by, uh, I argue that his farewell address, we, we often read the farewell address as a... Um, which, of course, the, the great theme of the farewell address is the, the warning about partisanship in its various guises. And we often read it as, well, the, 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 this is a danger that the country might someday face that we should head off. I think it's a lament about ills that he thought had already beset the country, that he, he's talking about what had happened under his, his watch. Um, and there is debate among historians about, you know, to what degree was he ever uh, above party, right? He, he thought of himself and, and tried to be above parties, above partisanship to be, you know, kind of steer an even course between the two sides. Um, my, you know, some argue that he was a federalist basically from the beginning. I think he was more even handed than that, at least during his first term and maybe the first part of his second term. You know, Hamilton didn't get his way every time. Jefferson did, you know, didn't lose all the, the fights. He, Jefferson thought he did, but I, I don't think he actually did. Um, but by the end of his second term, it's really hard to deny, uh, even for a Washington admirer, it's hard to deny that he had become a Federalist. He, his cabinet was all kind of second-rate rock-ribbed Federalist by this point. He no longer had a Jefferson or an Edmund Randolph on his cabinet. Um, by the time of his retirement, he corresponded basically exclusively with Federalists. He started referring to Republicans as, as the French party, you know, people who are, are too partisan to, to revolutionary France and who are basically would betray the country if given the chance. Um, when he ill-advisedly came out of retirement um, during the quasi-war with France, he really he, he wanted only Federalists to head, you know, to be serve as officers in the army. Um, so I think he, he was a, a, a partisan by the end. I don't know if that tells us something about him or something about his time, right? On the one hand, it's hard for anyone to live up to the ideals he had set for himself, right? He had very high ideals for himself and for, you know, his fellow citizens. Um, but, you know, I think it says a lot about the state of the country that the partisan divide was so deep that even he couldn't straddle the two sides, right? He has this aura of Olympian stature, Olympian detachment, and even he can't straddle the two sides. I think 
you know, is a sign of just how deep the, the rift had become. Yeah, so moving on to another founding father, you have a really great line from Ron Chernow talking about Hamilton as the founder of American government. Can you talk about Hamilton's involvement, especially through, and you've already touched on this a little bit, through Washington's administration as Treasury Secretary and then also in the Adams administration? Um, and another thing I found interesting when thinking about Hamilton, his worry out of all the fa founding fathers is really the one that didn't come to pass at all. And that America obviously now is a dominant world power in terms of military might, foreign influence and finance. And obviously um, a combination of those was what he was worried about. Sure. So Chernow's line is he says, okay, if Washington was the father of this country, Madison was the father of the Constitution, then Hamilton was the father of the American government, meaning that he did more than any other single individual to, to kind of set the government up and running. And, you know, I think that's, a, you know, you could make that case. He did do a lot as the, the nation's first treasury secretary, and he was really, in, in many ways, the pivotal member of, of Washington's cabinet in a variety of ways. Um, and what he tried to do during those years is basically to build up the government as much as possible. Um, and th this is because he, uh, you alluded to this, if the main theme of Washington's disillusionment was the rise of parties and partisanship, Hamilton's was what he saw as a lack of energy or vigor in the federal government, the national government. Um, and he thought this from the outset. So he gave, um, a remarkable speech at the, the Philadelphia Convention where he advocated the, that the delegates adopt something approaching British monarchy. Um, on the last day of the convention, he told his fellow delegates that no man's ideas were more remote from the Constitution than his were. Um, and again, his main worry was that the government wouldn't have enough energy, particularly in relation to the state governments. He thought that um, Investing too little power in the government was at least as dangerous, if not more dangerous than investing too much power in it. A weak government was more of a threat to liberty than a strong one, which he thought had been proven both during the Revolutionary War, right, when the Continental Congress couldn't effectively levy taxes or raise troops, and so the, the army was perpetually undermanned, undersupplied, and also by the feckless government created by the Articles of Confederation. So for him, energy is the essence of good government. He spends most of the 1790s trying to strengthen the government in any way he can dream up. So We've already said he developed a sweeping financial program that he thought would put the country on a sound economic footing. Um, as a member of the cabinet, more generally, he sought to expand presidential power at every turn, domestic and foreign affairs, uh, particularly, particularly while Washington, this, the, the war hero Washington was in office and it was just sort of harder for people to object too much. Uh, then later in the decade, um, he was the effective commander of the nation's army during the what's known as the quasi-war with France. He, he used that to try to build up the military. And, and so he, he spent all this time trying to, to build it up. But then he, he never really thought that he had done enough. So Jefferson and Madison and the Republicans were always there fighting him, hounding him, keeping him from realizing the full extent of his vision. Um, and then, of course, to his utter dismay in the election of 1800, Jefferson and the Republicans sweep into power with a mandate to pare down the government's powers still further, which is when he really loses it. 
So he, he publishes essay after essay, trying to show all the ways that the, the Republicans were systematically making the government weaker, making the country more vulnerable. Um, and, and so the, he, during this period, he writes a really, I think, touching letter to his friend, Governor Morris, where he says that basically after all this time, all these years fighting to make the government work, it's just not going to happen. He, he went so far as to call the Constitution a frail and worthless fabric. And, to, and he said that every day proves to me more and more that this American world was not made for me. And so um, he, he died thinking that Basically, this already weak government was going to become weaker still under the auspices of the Republicans and that little but disillusion and disorder could be um, expected from there on out. Now, as you say that, you know, we still have partisan polarization today. Washington's fears are still um, with us for sure. Hamilton's vision might, say, in some ways it did fare far better, right? I mean, I think you're right. He'd surely be thrilled by America's economic and military might on the international stage, um, the, the strong presidency we have. There are lots of things he'd be thrilled by. On the other hand, I think he'd probably also be fairly despondent about the inefficiency and, and ineffectiveness of the federal government, right? Nobody's going to, uh, very few people today would say the federal government is too small, but is it energetic enough? I, I think, you know, it may, remains pretty overwhelmingly difficult to get major legislation passed. Um, even when, you know, the same party controls the, the presidency, the House and the Senate, as we see right now. Um, and so I think he might be worried about the, the lack of energy in the government, even if he's not worried about the, the size of the government, if you were alive today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Washington's cabinet has come up a lot. And really, I mean, one of the most famous cabinets in history, one to easily rival uh, Lincoln's team of rivals. Uh, sorry for the pun. Um, but could you talk a little bit about Hamilton's relationship to Jefferson and how bitterly opposed they were? Because on the one hand, you might not expect it going in, given that Jefferson was really good friends with Madison, obviously, and Hamilton is coming off just writing the Federalist Papers with Madison. Um so how did it how did it go and fall apart so quickly um, between that cast of characters? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and the 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 Madison, uh, you know, the the, the, the complete ch change in the trajectory of his views, or what many see as a complete change in the trajectory of his views, is really striking and. Um, difficult to explain. Now, some historians have tried to explain it at great, great length, seven or 800 page books on, you know, how did this arch federalist during the 1780s, right, who wanted at the Constitutional Convention, he wanted the, the federal government to have a veto over state laws. Um, very quickly in the 1790s became an arch Republican, a Jeffersonian Republican, to the point where by the end of the decade, he's penning the Virginia resolutions, right, calling for states to be able to interpose against um, federal laws. And so, um, the, you know, the, in the Madison switch happened even before Jefferson came home from France. So when, when Washington assembled his cabinet, Jefferson wasn't there for the first several months because he was still um, making his way back from France where he'd been serving as the, the minister to that country. And so, um, you know, people sometimes think, well, Madison came under Jefferson's sway or, or somehow. And, uh, you know, I think he probably did, but it, that wasn't the precipitating, um, you know, 
cause of, of Madison's turnabout because it happened even before Jefferson left. He, as soon as um, Hamilton's proposed to assume all the state's debts and to fund them at, at face value, Madison lost it and said, well, you know, we're just rewarding greedy speculators who snapped up all the, the government debt at a deep uh, uh, discount. But, you know, we were, we're not going to reward the, the deserving soldiers who originally uh, were given the bonds. Anyway, so, so the, the um, Hamilton... Madison rivalry is interesting in itself, but then the Jefferson part of it really, I think, is what made it really bitter. So Hamilton and Jefferson had not met each other before they became uh, members of the, the, the two key members of the cabinet together. Um, and they very quickly realized that they had, again, not just different policy visions, but different visions for what the government was and should be. Um, Jefferson later said that we were pitted daily in the cabinet like two cocks or something like that. I don't have the quote in front of me, but you know, they, they, um, it, it was really a testament to Washington's leadership that he kept them in the cabinet together for as long as he did, four or five years, right, when they could barely stand to be in the same room with one another. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good illustration of just how acrimonious the, the period was in a way that we sometimes forget. It, happily, I think it's coming back to public consciousness a, a little bit as a result of the musical, right? The, the Hamilton musical, I think, nicely captures just how um, much Hamilton and, and, and Jefferson hated one another. Um, but that's that's accurate. They did. So moving on to the third founding father, which I think you correctly say, it's not surprising that he had worries about um, the the government. And of course, I'm talking about John Adams, um, who had the unenviable task of following up Washington as the second president. Um, what was his biggest concern and fear about the future of the country? Okay, good. So Adams... Um, as you say, the, his pessimism is the most predictable, um, I say in the book, it, you, maybe even overdetermined, just because he's so irascible, he's so curmudgeonly, um, he too hates political parties, he too worries about the ills of democracy, he lives so long that he gets to see his erstwhile political opponents, the Republicans, gain, you know, total ascendancy over the political scene for basically two and a half decades. But I think really the overriding source of his pessimism, the one that he returned to again and again, was what he perceived as the lack of virtue, of civic virtue among the American people. Um, he thought that no country could remain free for long unless its citizens you know, had a sense of duty, a sense of patriotism, that they were willing to put the public good ahead of their own good, that if people just pursued their own selfish ends, then popular self-government would be just an insoluble clash of conflicting interests. But for all that, he was never entirely persuaded that the American people had the necessary sense of duty, even in, as far as the, 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 even before the Declaration of Independence, at the very outset of the revolution, you know, he, he has worried about the avarice and corruption and venality and, and you know, rage for profit and comet, right? He, he, he really worried that the American people weren't, weren't up to snuff, weren't up to the task. And these worries just grew more deep over time. Um, he, I, I think, was in some ways one of the real first, really the first critics of the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that the American people are somehow innately more virtuous, more fit for democracy than other peoples were. He said very flatly, there is no special providence for Americans. Their nature is the same as those of others. You know, we shouldn't count on something about the American character to 
to get us out of this mess. Um, and yeah, his worries persisted for basically 50 years, for a half century. They, they, they started much earlier than the other framers were founders worries did um even again well before the constitution was was dreamed up and and lasted for a very long time yeah something you touched on briefly if you could elaborate further um was what adam saw as somewhat of a prescription for the want of virtue in america through his defense writings if you could just briefly talk about that the, the defense of the constitutions. Mm -hmm. so, okay, yeah, so this is his magnum opus. It's a, a work called the defense of the constitutions of government of the United States. Um, it's a three volume, very sprawling work um, that, that, you know, it's hard to wrap your, your head around. But it's during this, so he's writing this, he's, he, it's basically just in the, the year leading up to and during the constitutional convention that he's writing it. He's of course not at the convention, he's in, in England. Um, at the time, but he, he's writing, um, I think, you know, the, the immediate purpose for the, the book was to argue for, to defend the constitutions of the United States, that is to say the state constitutions, or at least the ones that he thought were um, well-crafted. This is, again, before the American constitution was, was um, devised or ratified. Um, and what he's really trying to defend is bicameralism, separation of powers, checks and balances. And this is in response to some English and especially French authors who are saying, no, basically what you want is, you know, a, a, a more of a pure republic, one where the popular will is represented in the legislature and the legislature does whatever it wants. You don't want too many checks on the popular will um, because the majority that should rule after all. And Adams, you know, vehemently disagrees with this. He, he, he wants to say you need all kinds of checks and balances. And, and he writes this book to defend that. Um, I think underneath that was him trying to figure out for himself whether you could come up with the proper mechanisms such that you wouldn't need this kind of civic virtue uh, among the people. Um, and, you know, he may have been sort of convinced for a time, but it wasn't really very long until he decided, no, you, you do need virtue after all. So we talked about balancing the one, the few, and the many. And so the, the you know, standard American way of separating powers is legislative, executive, judicial. He said, well, you have to balance the power of the, the many against the few. And he saw that happening in the House of Representatives and, and the Senate. Um, he thought the Senate should be basically a preserve of elite aristocrats um, and that they should be balanced against the, the common people in the House of Representatives. And then the one in the case in, in the case of a powerful independent executive would be kind of um, uh, adjudicate between the two sides, you know, to keep the two sides in, in balance. And so this was his vision for what the separation of power should look like. But again, it wasn't very long until he, he kind of um, came to think that that too was insufficient. Even, you know, immediately after the launching of the new government, um, he's already saying, well, we might need a new constitutional convention. Um, he, one of my favorite lines from, from the book, um, which I think really illustrates the contingency that, that hung over the whole process for them was, um, he's in New York, right? The, the first capital is in New York. And he writes to Abigail, who's still back in Massachusetts and says, no, come join me in New York. We have to live here. Think no more of Massachusetts for the next four years, assuming that the government lasts that long, right? So he's not even sure that the government is going to last for four years. Um, 
uh, again, that's, I think, a really just striking indication of just how, how fragile they thought the whole thing was. Um, and so, yeah, The Defense is a, a magnificent book in a lot of ways. There's a lot packed into it, but it's also this um, very sprawling book that's hard to, to wrap your head around and one that really, I think, only illustrates his views at a short period of time. There are a number of excellent books that, that take The Defense as their... Um, uh, their main focus and, and you know bring out Adams's views in that work and that's good that's important to do but if we take his whole career the emphasis on civic virtue is much much uh, more obvious both before and after that work than in that work itself. Yeah so as you had mentioned out of the three founding fathers we've gone over so far Adams is the first out of the three that really has a lengthy retirement to speak of as he lives all the way to 1826. Um, so could you talk about how seeing the Republicans come to power and living all the way far enough to even see his own son become president, how those decades and the events throughout them impacted his um, vision um, and hopes for the country? Sure. So he, yes, his, his retirement was the longest of any president until the 20th century. So for more than 25 years, he, he lived beyond his, his exit from the presidency. Um, and, you know, he, his view of Jefferson, his immediate predecessor, uh, successor, um, kind of ebbed and flowed. He, he sometimes said, you know, he's going to have to, to, I don't know how he's going to live with himself, given what he's done to the government. But a lot of times he said, well, Jefferson didn't change as much as he claimed he was going to change. Um, he, he, I think, thought less highly of Madison and vice versa. Madison didn't think highly of, of Adams at all. Um, and during this time, I mean, he did, there were kind of occasional bouts of optimism during his retirement, especially during the War of 1812, during this kind of period, period of uh, uh, patriotic fervor that was unleashed by the war against Britain. He started to think, well, maybe the American people will, you know, exhibit this kind of patriotism, this civic virtue. Um, now, he, he kind of worried about this, that do we need war? Do we need to kill each other <laughs> to make people virtuous? Um, but he toyed with that idea for a while. But, you know, pretty soon he went back to his, his habitual pessimism. And his later letters are just delightfully cranky, right? There's just, you know, these very colorful lines, especially my favorite are his letters to his friend, Benjamin Rush. Um, his his uh, correspondence with Jefferson is, of course, much more famous. But his letters to Benjamin Rush have, you know, just line after line about the, you know, the, the um, kind of ignorance and viciousness and, and, and uh, you know, ambitiousness and, and so forth of his, his fellow citizens. Um, and, and it's, you know, he's kind of funny, right? Of all the, these thinkers, he, obviously Benjamin Franklin is funnier. He's not a main character of the book. He, since he died just a year after the, the constitution went into effect, but he's, for all of his crankiness and curmudgeonliness, he's also funnier than the other founders did. Where, so I, I enjoyed reading his, his correspondence quite a lot. Um, but yeah, so again, his, his optimism ebbed and flowed during his retirement. The, 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 the closest thing to a moment of optimism was, was the War of 1812, but um, he, he you know, returned to his, his usual uh, kind of 
dark dark mindset not too long after that. Um, the, the, of course, his son, John Quincy Adams, as you mentioned, was elected president just before he died. And, uh, you know, of course, he was heartened by that. He was sort of <laughs> uh, sad for his son's sake. You know, he, he said anyone who's ever been president wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, and so he, you know, he foresaw rightly that that his son would have a difficult presidency just just as he did, um, but at least gave him a, a you know reason to have some some hope in, in his very last year. Mm -hmm. Now moving on to perhaps the only other founding father that can rival uh, Washington for fame is of course Thomas Jefferson. Um, he's a man you would probably say of. Uh, famous contradictions. He writes the Declaration, but he owns slaves. And you talk about how also throughout his life, he has a capacity for, at the same time, immense optimism and pessimism. Um, so how does his fear um, for the country shape and inform his life? Yes. And so his fear doesn't arrive until pretty late so he and i think his disillusionment is is pretty far and away the most surprising of the bunch insofar as he for most of his life he was an inveterate optimist he he had this seemingly unshakable confidence in the ultimate good, goodness and wisdom of the american people um even during the 1790s of course the federalists are in power he's alarmed by a lot of what they do he, he's alarmed by Hamilton's financial program, all the way up to the end of the decade, the Alien and Sedition Acts. And of course, he fought these things tooth and nail, which led to all the partisan rancor that, that Washington so decried. But he always had this faith that, you know, everything would come out right in the end, that deep down the bulk of the American people were not just virtuous Republicans with a small R, but also Jeffersonian Republicans with a capital R. That is that they, um, the, the Federalists might have been empowered temporarily as a sort of fluke, um, thanks to this the immense unparalleled popularity of Washington, but, but that it couldn't last, that time was on his side. And he thought he'd been proven right. He thought that good triumphed over evil in the election of 1800, um, which he immodestly called the revolution of 1800, that his elevation to the presidency wasn't just the temporary victory of a political party, it was the permanent triumph of liberty in America. Um, and for a long time, it seemed to be to him, right? He serves two mostly successful terms as president. Then he hands off the reins to his closest, most trusted political ally, James Madison, for another two terms. And then to his longtime acolyte, James Monroe, for two terms after that. And so, you know, of course, he was hopeful a lot longer than Washington, Hamilton, and Adams were, right? He, he seemed to win. He and his principles seemed to win in the end, just as he always expected they would. And yet even he ended up losing heart. Um, there were actually a, a few different reasons for that that I go through in the book, but I think the key one was the, the sectional divide between North and South that came to light during um, the Missouri crisis of 1819 to 1821, which is really the first great conflict over the expansion of slavery in America. Um, and I won't go through all the, the details of it, but the, the bottom line was that the mere fact that some Northern politicians had the temerity to oppose the extension of slavery into Missouri was enough to cause Jefferson to just lose it. Um, he, he, there's a famous letter in which he famously said that this controversy, like a firebell in a night, awakened me and filled me with terror. I considered it once as the knell of the Union. Um, he went on to basically prophesy the path to the Civil War, saying that, you know, when there's a deep divide, geographic divide uh, within the country with a deep moral principle 
um, separating the two sides that is never going to go away. Every new problem is just going to etch it deeper and deeper. And that, that, um, uh, that, that yeah, again, something like the Civil War is going to come. And, and he concludes the letter with a just unforgettable expression of regret. I don't have it in front of me, but he says something like, I'm now going to die believing that, that everything that we fought for in 1776 was in vain. It's going to be thrown away by their unwise, unworthy sons. And my only consolation is that I'm not going to live to weep over the destruction of the Republic, right? And so to be, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a clearer, more forceful articulation of disillusionment from that. Um, and this is, you know, this isn't the only, he wrote letter after letter during this time, uh, you know, each more hysterical and apocalyptic than, than the last. And, you know, he, he pinned the blame for this conflict, again, on anti-slavery Northerners. He, he thought that they were really committing treason against the Constitution and the principles of Republican government by opposing the expansion of slavery. And this was, you know, as you intimated in your question, his views on slavery were always notoriously complex, but by the end of his life, they were pretty unambiguously reprehensible, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the things that fascinated me, and I didn't, I didn't know it until earlier this summer when I read Professor Akil Mar's new book, The Words That Made Us, is how much he changed and changed for the worse on his views on slavery. I mean, if you want to briefly touch that, on it, he starts off like in favor of abolition and colon, uh, moving them to colonies. But at the end, he comes to the facially absurd idea that somehow spreading slavery into the territories will make it go away. Right. Okay. So in the 1780s, Jefferson fought a reasonably forceful battle against slavery. So, you know, we can talk about whether he was a hypocrite, because, of course, he was a slaveholder himself. He kept hundreds of people in bondage. He had kids with one of them, you know. Um, but in, just in the political sphere, he tried to put a pretty stinging denunciation of slavery in the slave trade in the Declaration of Independence. It had to be removed to get the deep Southern delegates to sign on, but, but he tried to put it there. Um, he came up with a couple of gradual emancipation schemes for his own home state of Virginia, uh, accompanied by colonization, as you say. Um, he proposed and almost got passed a uh, 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 law for the, under the Confederation Congress that would have banned slavery from all the Western territories, both North and South of the Ohio River, um, which if it had passed would have been remarkable. That would have really nipped in the bud the, the main cause of the Civil War, which is battling over the expansion of slavery to the West. Um, he really forcefully denounced slavery in moral terms in his, his only book and lots of letters. I mean, he said very racist things. I mean, he was a, you know, unambiguous racist, even when judged by the standards of his time. Um, his stuff on the inferiority of Black people is really just toe-curling to read today. But in, in, with regard to slavery, in the 1780s, he did as much as frankly, he could have reasonably done as a politician, right? He was way ahead of his time. You know, he couldn't get the gradual emancipation scheme or the ban on the West or any of these things passed, but he, he tried for them at least. But then unfortunately, the, you know, he just became worse and worse on this issue. So during the 1790s, he just put it on the back burner. He said, you know, I, I'm fighting this battle against Hamilton and the Federalists, and I can't very well alienate the whole South by pushing against slavery. So I'll just kind of stop talking about this. Even as presidency, he did 
basically nothing uh, of consequence to fight slavery. Um, and despite, you know, he had a golden opportunity with the Louisiana Purchase, this acquiring of this vast new tract of land, doubling the country's size. You know, I think the Jefferson of the 1780s might have said, well, can we find some way to ban slavery from this new territory? And he did nothing of the sort. And then during his retirement, he did the worst of all. He, as you suggested, he came to actively advocate the expansion of slavery into new territory. And the, so the, the theory he adopted, uh, this rather crackpot theory is known as diffusion. And the basic idea is that, well, if, if we allow slavery to expand to new states, new territories, it's not gonna increase the number of enslaved people. They're just gonna be spread, more spread out. And that if they're more spread out, then you know, maybe we'll have fewer slave rebellions, maybe they'll be treated better. But above all, he thought it's gonna make emancipation easier because then each individual slaveholder will hold fewer people in bondage. And so they'd have less to lose, right? If the day of, of emancipation were to finally arrive. Now this is patently absurd to say, well, we, we're gonna get rid of slavery by giving it free reign, right? That, that let's make it a big national problem rather than a narrow sectional one. I say in the book is like saying, the, the first thing to do if you have a fatal disease is to first let it spread throughout your body, and then surely it'll go away on its own. I mean, it's patently absurd to have thought that. He wasn't the only one. Madison, Monroe, other, you know, seemingly intelligent people bought this idea. Um, I think it's a testament to humanity's powers of self-serving rationalization that they were able to convince themselves that this was true. But, you know, he, he's not alone in this. Yeah, since you just briefly brought him up then. Um... And he's the namesake of the college we we both uh, went to. Um, what makes Madison unique um, among the founding fathers and being the only one to really have um, enduring hope and optimism for the future of the country? Yeah, so she, right. So James Madison of the major founders was easily the, the least disillusioned. So the, the four that I focused on in the book of the this, those founders who were disillusioned, so Washington, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, are not alone. It, you know, most of the big names um, were, were also disillusioned from John Jay to John Marshall, you know, so on and so forth. Um, really, the one big name who wasn't was Madison. Um, and I'll be honest, when I, I started this project, I frankly expected that Madison would have become disillusioned too. I, I mean, I knew Madison's stuff from the founding, his writings from the founding quite well. Um, and I knew a little bit about later in life during the nullification crisis. So I thought, you know, he just lived so long. He lived, despite being a, a rather sickly hypochondriac, he lived till 1836. This is most of the way through Andrew Jackson's second term as president. Right? He just lived so long. He saw so much, frankly, pretty bad stuff that I assumed that he would have been disgusted by it all, especially by the kind of populist demagoguery represented by Jackson. And so I assumed I'd be writing a book about these five disillusioned figures. Um, but as I spent more time with Madison's uh, letters and other writings from this, this later period, the evidence just wasn't there. The, the, on the contrary, he was, uh, to, the, to the end of his life, he remained surprisingly, even defiantly optimistic about America's constitutional order. Um, Again, you know, he was never, it's not that he was ever without worry, especially during the nullification crisis, but I think his, his worries were never so deep, so lasting as to lead, lead to disillusionment with the political system as a whole, or, or to despondency about the country's future. 
Um, so I spend a couple of chapters toward the end of the book asking the obvious question, which is why, why he was such an outlier, right? Why did he retain his confidence in the government in the nation that they created when, when so many others became so disillusioned? Um, now, one potential answer we could rule out immediately, right? So you might think, well, he's the father of the constitution. That means, you know, he got what he wanted out of the Philadelphia convention and he remains satisfied with the result. Um, but that's not right. Um, in fact, at first, he too regarded the Constitution as radically defective. Um, we, we sometimes think of the or, or talk of the, the Constitution as embodying Madisonian principles. But in fact, he lost more battles than he won at the convention, including some of those that he deemed uh, most important. So one scholar went through and counted all of the uh, proposals that he either moved or seconded or unequivocally supported uh, during the convention. And I think that uh, I'm getting this right, that he lost on 40 of the 71 or something like that. I know it's, it's definitely a majority. Um, and so at the convention's close, he was pretty pro profoundly disheartened. He, he writes this despairing letter to Jefferson saying, it's not gonna answer his national object, even if it's ratified the constitution that is. Um, but then he, he, I think, reasonably quickly grew reconciled to the Constitution and in fact became one of its biggest admirers in a way that, say, Hamilton, his co-author on The Federalist, never quite did. Um, and this, again, lasted for almost another half century, right? Not just through the 1790s, um, by the end of which the Federalists were all, Washington, Hamilton, Adams were all disillusioned, not just through Jefferson's despondent final years, but also through much of this very turbulent Jacksonian era. And so, again, I spent a couple chapters saying, well, how do we explain this? Um, part of it, I think, was just a matter of personality or temperament. He, his, his contemporaries always described him as measured and dispassionate and even tempered. Um, and, and, and so he's just a more even keeled guy than I think the others were. And, and this no doubt contributed to his lack of, of despair. Um, another part of the answer that's related to the first one perhaps is that he never had the um, somewhat naive or, or grandiose expectations that the other founders had for, for America and its government. So he, he just had lower expectations for what was politically possible. So he never thought that the American people would always surmount partisanship like Washington or always surmount selfishness like Adams. Um, he never had these visions like Hamilton did of, of the, America playing this grand role on the world stage, competing with the European imperial powers on their own terms. Nor did he even, for all of his closeness to Jefferson, he did, he'd have the, did he have this vision of you know, virtuous yeoman farmers getting together to wisely manage their political affairs on a local level. Um, you know, and, and so I think this just meant he was less likely to be disappointed in what America ultimately became, the, the, his, his lowered expectations. Um, I go through a couple others in the book. Here, I'll just mention one more factor that I think went into this, his Madison's enduring confidence which was just that by the end of his life, um, he was the last of the fathers, as he's sometimes called, he had seen the country endure so much by that point, right? He, he had seen the country endure the Alien and Sedition Acts and the War of 1812 and the Missouri Crisis and the Nullification Crisis and on and on. And this led him to believe, or at least to hope, that it could weather a good deal more. Right? So the more the nation endured, the more durable it seemed to him. Um, and so he, yeah, he's kind of the, the um, odd man out and the, the flip side of the coin from the other founders who, who were so disillusioned. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting points, stuff that comes for me at the end in the epilogue, and 
thinking of all of the founding fathers and their fears and connection. What does it say about the founding fathers' fears on public virtue, partisan, uh, partisanship, centralization, slavery, etc.? If for the most part, those are fears that America has weathered through for um, centuries at this point, as you're just alluding to. Um, does this mean that they were unwarranted in the founding era? And as you mentioned, a lot of these are issues that we still fear about today, or how should we evaluate uh, their relevance and seriousness as uh, threats to the continuing success of America? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I'm afraid that the, the, the book's epilogue has a bit of the sort of typical scholarly, you know, on the one hand, but on the other type, type character, right? Um, on the one hand, you're right, uh, the, the, all the founders' fears and worries are still very much with us. Um, I, I don't think we need to run through them. It's, it's, it's basically obvious that if even Hamilton's worries are with us, of course, the others are too. Um, but you might look at it and say, okay, so they're, they're still with us, but that means that we've lived with them for 230 plus years, right? If you take the Madisonian view of things that um, maybe we don't, so is countless times throughout American history, the, the we've hear, heard pr predictions of the looming demise of American democracy that, you know, no, people have said this before, but this time it really is the end of democracy as we know it. And of course, you've heard this in the past couple of years over and over again. But, you know, the more optimistic way to look at it is if you take a page from Madison's book, we've lived these, with these problems for well over two centuries, despite the founders' own predictions to the contrary. Maybe we can live with them a good deal longer. Um, you know, it, it's also... Uh, I, I try to bring a, a broader historical perspective at the very end of the book that, you know, it's appalling as the state of American politics might be at any given moment. And I'm, I'm pretty frequently disgusted with it myself, right? You just have to read the newspaper on any given day to see that it all is not entirely well with the Republic. But, you know, it's important to remember that things were far worse when these founders whom we still so admire presided over the country, right? Most obviously we no longer have widespread chattel slavery or, or the routine dispossession or massacre of indigenous tribes. On the contrary, civil political liberties have never been extended to more people. Um, we no longer face repeated serious threats of secession and civil war, again, Every time there's a major disagreement over the course of the 1790s and early 19th century that somebody threatens the breakup of the union, we no longer have that. Um, political violence is less common today. I mean, I, I know it sounds weird to say that, and you know, we're only uh, less than a year removed from a very harrowing attack on the Capitol, but you know, we don't see legislators brawling on the floor of the House of Representatives with canes and fire pokers. Um, just big, massive, violent uprisings like the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, our, our, president, our presidential elections, as nasty as they can be and, and, and seem, I think, pale in comparison to, say, the election of 1800, which pitted Adams against Jefferson, two of our most revered founders. Um, we've already touched on it, that, that our, our mainstream media, for all of its problems, is far more responsible and fact-based than the, the partisan newspapers of the 1790s. And so on and so forth, which isn't, I, I don't think this is grounds for complacency. I think our problems are, are real and pressing and, and 
we should deal with them. But I do, you know, I hope that a fuller understanding of the founders and the founding helps to at least um, summon a broader sense of perspective on some of these problems. And so as we unfortunately come to a close, my last question that I always offer to each um, guest is in thinking of like your time period or study, so this would be the founding, what would be your favorite three books that you would recommend um, to any listeners? Wow. Okay. That's almost an invidious question. There's so much good stuff on the, the founding and, and the founders. It's really hard to pick three. Um, instead of doing my favorite three, let me, let me pick, I'll, I'll do three, but let me think of three that are, are kind of most relevant for my book. So I guess the first one I'll recommend is um, Gordon Wood's book, Friends Divided. This is a book on, it's a kind of dual biography of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Anything that Wood writes is worth reading, right? He's kind of the dean of historians of this period, and, and he's a really uh, amazing guy, an amazing writer. Um, this one, I, I'm picking this one because this was the sort of immediate impetus for me thinking of this project. Um, it was, you know, the later chapters uh, of that book show um, how disillusioned Jefferson and, and Adams had become. And I kind of thought, huh, you know, I know that's true of, of Washington and, and Adams as well. And I had thought that it might be true of, of Madison. Let me let me run with that. So that was the one that um, sort of immediately uh, piqued my interest in this theme and, and led me to write the book. So the first one would be Gordon Wood's Friends Divided. Um, second, I'll recommend a book called The Age of Federalism. It's co-authored by a pair of historians. Um, Stanley Elkins and Eric McKittrick. I hope I'm getting those names right. But this is one of these big, massive, you know, many, many hundred page um, histories, overviews of the age when the Federalists were in power. So it's basically the 1790s. Um, and it sounds like it would be a really boring book, but it's not a boring book at all. It, it's, they do a really good job of bringing the, the controversies and the people alive. Um, it really gives you a real sense, a real feel for what things were like during that period. Um, they have a slight, you know, I think Federalist bias versus, as opposed to Republican bias, but then again, so do I, I think. So, you know, it's congenial in, in that respect. Um, but that, that, for kind of an overview of the period, I think that's, that's excellent. Um, I guess for the last one, I'll, I'll go in a slightly different direction. I'll recommend a, a book called The Last of the Fathers. It's by a historian named Drew McCoy. It's interesting that I picked three historians when I'm a political theorist, but anyway. Uh, so this is a book on, on Madison during the 1830s when he's really the last of the founders around um, and, and his you know attempts to come to grips with what you know, it was happening in the country during the nullification crisis, during Jackson, during the rise of, you know, railroads and, and you know, all, all the things that were happening in the, the 1830s. Um, McCoy actually presents Madison as slightly more um, pessimistic or, or disillusioned than I do, um, even despite the fact that my, the theme of my book is disillusionment. But it's really an interesting look at um, a founder during a period much, much later than the founding um, and how, you know, he saw himself as carrying this, this torch for the founders. Uh, also talks about his, his um, kind of revising and writing of the, the, his notes for the Constitutional Convention. So lots of interesting stuff in there. That's a little bit more academic, I think, than the, the first two recommendations are, but, but an excellent book nonetheless. All right. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Professor Rasmussen, for coming on and being interviewed. And I would highly recommend to listeners to check out his book, Fears of a Setting Sun, to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of our founding fathers. 
Thanks, Luke, for the invitation. I appreciate it.